If you have a Bible, let's open it up to the book of 2 Timothy. Lord willing, we're going to get through chapters 1 and 2 tonight. While you're getting there, just a couple announcements. Uh, there's a marriage class coming up Sunday night, starting September 10th. There's the Midwest Pastors Conference coming up October 9, 10, 11. There's the uh, Jesus Conference. It's a one-day conference, September 9th. Uh, and there's also, maybe not quite as, as spiritual sounding as any of those, but there's also Poetry Night coming up October 22nd at 6 p.m. Uh, if you are... That's sad, you know, that, that's what we clap for, but that's okay. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> If you would like to present a poem, please, please try to get your poem to Mary Murphy by September 30th, because that lets there be a program, that lets there be some logistical things going on. So if you are planning to do a poem or you think you would like to do a poem, now is your warning to start prepping, start thinking through what you want to do. But be that as it may, tonight we find ourselves in 2 Timothy. And Lord, we pray that you would bless your word to our hearts and that you would uh, teach each and every one of us and that we would be drawn closer to you, that you'd be honored as we give attention to your word. So please speak to our hearts tonight. Second Timothy is, as far as uh, anybody can tell in church history, Paul's last letter. It's the last letter the Apostle Paul would write before he was executed. And so he's got other letters that he wrote while he was in prison, but if we sort of piece together what we have from the book of Acts, which we know to be true, and also what we have from church history, which is, we believe to be true, uh, Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, he's in prison awaiting trial in Rome. As far as we can tell from church history, he was released on that charge. He then went out and did ministry for several years after the fact. But in about 64 AD, or AD 64, uh, he was arrested again because the emperor Nero had started sort of a national persecution against Christians. After the, after the city of Rome burned, whether Nero started or whether it was an accident, uh, Nero needed a scapegoat, and the Christians were a very convenient excuse. And so persecution against Christians started to happen on a national scale. It, was, it became a political persecution instead of just a religious persecution, which is what it was when the Jewish leaders were trying to stop it. And so Paul's writing this in prison uh, shortly before he's executed, and there's a sense here, you know, within a very brief time span, most of the early church leaders are going to be gone. Peter probably died within either very close to the time that Paul died. Uh, the apostle, the disciple James has already died at this point. So sort of the, the old guard is starting to die off. This is about 30 years after Christ has ascended back into heaven. And Paul's writing with a sense of urgency, right? As if, it's kind of a, it's a funny thing to say about Paul, but as if Romans wasn't sufficient. Uh, description of grace, as if Colossians wasn't a sufficient summary of Jesus Christ, as if Philippians wasn't a sufficient enough commentary on circumstances in the Christian life, as if First and Second Corinthians weren't enough commentary on how the church should be run. Paul's writing a letter to Timothy, to a young pastor, saying, okay, here's what you need to focus on. Here are the things that you got to buckle down and make sure you own these things in your own heart. And there's an awareness in Paul's writing that he's getting close to the end. And so there is that sense of urgency. There's that sense of, okay, no, this, this one really matters. And all the scripture matters, right? But, but you get a sense from Paul. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. But Paul, as a human writing this, is, is writing with that sense of, I am on a clock that is running out. And I want to make sure I get the important things down. 
And so he's writing that to Timothy. And as a result, what we have is four chapters that are incredibly packed with insights and truth about what does it look like to carry on a legacy, to carry on Christian service, to carry on faithfulness in a Christian walk. Okay, and so Timothy, 2 Timothy is one of these books uh, where it's important to understand that no matter what we say tonight, we are going to unpack a fraction of what is here. Okay, and this is why we say it often, probably don't say it enough, but what happens, the teaching of the word of God in a church service is never a replacement for what needs to be happening in your own time, in your own relationship with the Lord, in your own interaction with the word of God. It should be a wonderful addition. It should be a very helpful compliment, but it is never a substitute because the Lord wants to teach you things personally in his time with the word. And so sometimes it's helpful when you come to a passage like this because we can just stop and say, it is impossible. It is absolutely impossible in the amount of time we have tonight to get through First Timothy one and, 2 Timothy 1 and 2 and walk away and say, okay, I got 2 Timothy now. I'm good. It's just not going to happen. And so what our goal is tonight is to appreciate what the Lord is saying and what the word of God is speaking, but it needs to never be a replacement. That's why we put such an emphasis as a church on reading through the word of God on your own time. If you don't have a through the Bible in a year plan, they're sitting on the back table. Grab one tomorrow morning, open it up to August 31st and just start, right? And next year on August 30th, you will have read through the entire Bible. So be in the word on your own time, okay? And I, and I just say that because, you know, I mean, every passage of scripture feels like this when you're teaching because you learn so much as you're preparing and, and you realize that you can't possibly consolidate it all. But sometimes there's, there's pockets of the scripture where that's just so powerfully true. And 2 Timothy is one of those. But with that being said, it won't stop us from trying. So here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's introduction here is very similar to all of his other introductions uh, in the sense that he says, you know, grace, mercy, and peace. We've talked about it every time we get to an introduction of Paul's. Paul always says grace and peace in his letters, and he always says them in that order because the grace of God is absolutely necessary in order for any person to experience the peace of God. It never goes the other way around. It's ne- if you're ever lacking peace, it's not something that you manufacture. It's something that you receive by going back and understanding grace. And so grace and peace always come in that order. But when Paul writes to pastors, he adds grace, mercy, and peace. Because presumably, pastors need a lot of mercy, right? Pastors get held to a standard by the Lord for presenting the word of God. And James tells us that there's going to be a stricter level of accountability for that. And so they need mercy because they're fallible, but the Lord is going to hold them to a standard. So he tells Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace. But notice, this is really important, I think, as the book opens up. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and then what's he say? According to the promise of life. Paul's about to die, okay? Paul, you know, he may not have an exact date at this point, but he's, he's closing in on the final stretch. He's gonna die. And he tells Timothy, I'm an apostle according to the promise of life that I've received. And it's important to catch that. It's a little detail, but it matters. But Paul is, as his time on earth is drawing to a close, his ability to see things from an internal perspective is broadening. And so Paul's looking at his life. And and for most of us, if we were in that position, we'd be saying like, wow, I've got, you know what, three weeks left, two months left. Paul's looking at it saying, wow, I'm coming up on real life. 
This has been the shadow. I'm coming up on the real thing. I'm about to burst out of the ground like when a seed comes out. I'm about to find out what it's like to really be alive. And so he's, he's looking at things from an eternal perspective. And, he, and that perspective is going to shape the entire book. Because Paul is not writing this book saying, hey, here's what you need to do so you can hang on till you die without screwing things up. He's writing this book to say, hey, here's the promise that we have. Here's what you get to hang on to. And this is why it's worth persevering. Verse 3, he goes on. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. A couple things here. Timothy has a legacy of faith. He has been handed to him by his mother and his grandmother. We have no commentary on his father. We're told in the book of Acts that his mother is Jewish and his father is Greek. So it could be that his father had died young and, and Timothy never knew him. It could be that his father is spiritually absent. And that is, you know, in terms of spiritual development, sometimes that's an equal loss. But Paul says, hey, there's a faith that's in you that is sincere, that has been handed to you by your mother and your grandmother. And so just be encouraged, you know, and sometimes we look at situations and we say, well, you know, that's, that's a rough situation. I really don't know if the Lord can pull something out of that. You know, I don't know. Man, there's an absent dad. You really can't raise kids without a mom and a dad. So, you know, hope they turn out okay, but they probably won't. You know what? Timothy is part of a legacy of faith. And he's going to receive because God brought Paul into his life as a spiritual father. So any situation is not, no situation is beyond God's ability to work, right? No void, no loss is beyond God's ability to create a faithful person. But notice also, Paul, Paul says, I remember you in my prayers night and day, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Paul says, when I pray about you and I think about your faith, I'm filled with joy. Now, Paul, from, a, from an earthly circumstance perspective, does not have that many things to be thankful for right now. Okay, he's sitting in prison, which, as best anybody can tell, you look at Roman prisons when, we, when they excavate the ruins, this was not a pleasant place to be, right? Paul is sitting in a miserable earthly situation. He's about ready to die. And he says, you know what? When I think of your faith, I'm encouraged. Never underestimate you, the ability of your faith and your faithfulness to encourage somebody else. Sometimes being steady is a massive encouragement to other Christians, right? Don't ever, don't ever sell that short. In verse 6, Paul says, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of sound mind. Therefore, because you have a sincere faith, because you've been handed a spiritual legacy, Therefore, there's a gift that God has given you. You know what it is and I know what it is. We don't know what it is. And I kind of like that we don't because it's vague for every one of us to say, well, what is my gift? Right? But there's a gift that's within you that God has given you. Stir it up. This is not the time for Timothy to sit still. Paul says, this is not the time for you to be afraid of what's going to happen. Because persecution for the Christians at this point is increasing. And Paul says, no, no, no. This is time to fire up your engines. Okay, because God has not given us a spirit of fear. God has given us a spirit of power. 
The Holy Spirit in you is giving you power. He's given a spirit of love, right? Power unchecked by love is brutality, but he's given a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Christians, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have the ability to be the only people in the room who truly can stay level and keep a level head and say, you know what, here's what's going on. This is bad, this is bad, this is bad. God is still in control. This is bad, this is bad, this is worse. God is still in control. This is going on. I have no idea what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future, right? God has given us these things. So Paul is telling Timothy, hey, now is not the time to say, well, you know, God gave me this gift or this call, but I'm just gonna kind of bottle it up for a little while, you know? Like, it's just not, just not a great time to walk in obedience. It's not a great time to, to really step out in faith. I think I'll just kind of see how the cards roll out. Paul says, that is not where this is going right now, right? The, the, the time to walk in obedience is right now because it never gets easier than right now. Right now is what you've got. It's what you're given. And Paul says, hey, this is it. This is your moment. This is your opportunity. Stir up what God has given you. Do not let it go to waste. In verse 8, therefore, and again, in Scripture, it's corny, but it's very true. Whenever you see the word therefore, you should stop and ask yourself, what is it there for? So, therefore what? Therefore, because there's a gift within you that needs to be stirred up. Therefore, because God has given you a spirit of power and of love and of sound mind. Because of these things, Paul says, verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Paul says, okay, therefore, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, and don't be ashamed of the consequences of believing the gospel. But he says, and he's inviting him instead to share with Paul in what? In the sufferings. Paul's not denying reality. Right? This, isn't, this isn't Christian science or Buddhism or something where you say, well, no, it's all just, it's a construct of my mind. No, this is real. Paul's miserable right now. He's suffering. And he says, hey, you know what? Join with me. This is, this is your chance, Timothy. This is your opportunity. God is putting this before you. Hold on to it. But he's saying, there's a couple of things you really got to pick up in this paragraph. He says, I'm suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul is suffering, but, he, but the enemy, those who are making him suffer, are not outside the limits of the power of God. Paul knows that his suffering has not gone past what God is allowing. And so he says, hey, that doesn't mean it's good. That doesn't mean it's being done by righteous men. But Paul's saying, you know what? God is orchestrating this. God will not let my sufferings go one ounce beyond what they are supposed to. And so with that, I can suffer for the sake of the gospel. And he's encouraging Timothy, persecution is not an excuse to hide. It's a clarification of the ministry. It's a clarification of what we are called to, okay? This book, 
Paul has got a very simple message in this book, and that is this. Jesus Christ is all that matters. That's the message of 2 Timothy. Okay, Paul says, I'm a gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us. Not according to anything that we've done, but according to his own purpose and his grace. And that's what I'm in prison for. I'm in prison because God has saved me. All right, and he says down at the end of the paragraph, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. Paul doesn't say I know what I have believed. He says, I know whom I have believed. Paul's suffering because he knows a person, because he knows Jesus Christ. Christianity is never about what do you know. It is never about how accurate is your doctrine. It is never about what's your status or how many good things do you do. Christianity is about do you know whom you are believing in? Do you know Jesus Christ is the question. If you know the answer to that question, everything else will fall into place. If you do not know the answer to that question, nothing else matters. And Paul's writing with a clarity here because he knows, he says, hey, I'm, I've got the promise of life. I'm about ready to really come to life, but you are going to have to carry on the legacy that I'm passing. And so you need to understand that there has got to be a focus and a drive and a purpose in your calling. When you stir up this gift that's in you, you better not stir it up for Timothy's sake. You better not stir it up to not feel guilty about yourself. You had better stir it up because Jesus Christ is who he said he is. And and Paul says that alone, that truth, makes everything else worthwhile. Verse 13, he goes on, he says, Hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Hold fast. Hang on. Right? Hold fast. That's a great term. Right? If you want to tattoo something across your knuckles someday, hold fast is a good one. There's another conversation we had for that, but it's a good, it's a good, it's a good thought. You hold fast. Okay? But you hold fast to what? Because we're all holding on to things. We're all clinging to things. There are certain things that we do not want to let go of, but what are you holding fast to? Paul says, you hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me. You hold fast to what the Apostle Paul taught. What did the Apostle Paul teach? What's the pattern of sound words that we have from Paul? How about a book called Romans? Where Paul says, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, but, uh, you know, but if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Christ from the dead, you'll be saved. Right? The book of Romans where Paul outlines the gospel. The book of Colossians where Paul says basically the solution to false doctrine is to focus on Jesus Christ. The book of First and Second Corinthians where Paul outlines here's how a church should function. And it should function this way for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the edification of the other believers in the church. Okay, there's a pattern of sound words that Paul has taught Timothy over the years. And he's saying, you hold on to those things. And Timothy is responsible for what he's been entrusted with. Right? Paul says, you hold fast to what I taught you. He didn't say hold fast to what I taught Titus or hold fast to what I taught Luke. Hold fast to what I taught you. Every one of us is responsible for what we have been given, right? I'm not responsible for what you've been given. You're not responsible for what I've been given. You're responsible and I'm responsible for what we do with what we've been given, right? And what we've been given is the Word of God. What we've been given is the Holy Spirit of God. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with Him? Are you going to hold fast? Or are you going to, you know, I'll stir that gift up later. Paul says, hold fast. 
The thing, the good thing which was committed to you, you keep it. Do not lose it. There are good things. There are good truths that have been given to every one of us. We need to keep them, Paul says. Verse 15, he says, This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Sorry. Runny nose. But Paul says, listen, everybody in Asia has turned away from me, including these two guys, who evidently must have, there was some sort of connection there. And he says, there's an exception, and that's Anisiphorus. And may God grant that man mercy, because he came and found me when he was in Rome. And that's, think about that. Anisiphorus came to Rome and tracked down a political prisoner to encourage him. Right? I mean, think about if, if I was trying to think about earlier today. If you will, imagine that Saddam Hussein is still in prison. And you happened to be a friend of his back in the day. Are you going to go to the Iraqi government and say, hey, I'm looking for this guy named Saddam. We used to be friends. I'd like to encourage him. No. Why would you? Like, your goal is to get away and stay away. But Anisiphorus comes to Paul and he says, I'm looking for this guy named Paul. I think you've probably heard of him. Nobody likes him. He's actually going to get killed pretty soon because he won't shut up about Jesus Christ. Have you met that guy? And everybody says, oh yeah, I've met that guy. Yeah, oh, we all know who Paul was. Yes, yes. He says, this guy came and encouraged me. But notice, he says, all those in Asia have turned away from me. That's a fast sentence to read. But who else in Asia? Church at Ephesus. All the churches in the region of Galatia. Church at Antioch. Church at Smyrna. Where we're told, you know, in the book of Revelation, like one of the churches that is doing great. All of those churches, Paul says, they've all turned away. They've all left me. And being faithful in Christianity is very often a lonely occupation. And there's, there's a distinction here, okay? Faithful service will often result in people departing from you. There's a difference between that and being, you know, obsessive about your pet doctrines in a sense to the point that you drive every other person away. That's not the same thing. But being faithful in service to the Lord will often result in people saying, you know what? I just, I just want to take it a little more chill right? And I just, I don't feel the need to be that, you know, radical or whatever it is. But Christianity is a call to steward something, to hold on to something. Paul says, hey, you know what? These guys have departed. And we'll see at the end of the book, there are still faithful people that he knows, but he sent them out on other missions. So he's still by himself. Even, you know, if you're, if we get to be in a season where we're surrounded by faithful people who are all just serving the Lord together and we're all growing together, it's an awesome gift. But very often what happens is the Lord spreads out faithful people, right? And so faithful people rise up in a group, and then one of them gets a call from the Lord to go minister somewhere else. One of them gets a call to minister somewhere else. Christianity, my siblings make fun of me because I say it all the time, but Christianity is a farewell religion, right? We say goodbye a lot, and eventually we're waiting for the final reunion where we all say hello and we don't say goodbye anymore. But down here, we say goodbye an awful lot because people get called out, people get sent out, and people abandon you, right? So Paul's writing a letter to a guy alone in a prison cell. But what's he say at the beginning? He said, I've got a promise of life. This man's got a perspective that is not circumstance-driven. He's got a perspective that is Jesus Christ-driven. And so in chapter 2, Paul's going to kind of 
transition a little bit, and he's going to start outlining a couple of metaphors that help provide a picture for the roles of Christian service. Okay, well, he's kind of giving us word pictures to think about to help us understand what it's like to serve as a Christian. So what we're going to do, we're going to read down through verse 7, and then we'll work our way backwards and kind of, or we'll go back to the top and and work our way down. So chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure a hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So first off, he says, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, because I have the promise of life. Therefore, because you have a gift that's in you. Therefore, because you're called to hold fast the pattern of sound words. Therefore, because Jesus Christ is all that matters. Therefore, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That sentence, if you don't understand what grace is, that sentence makes no sense. Right? Because if grace is just like, hey, do whatever you want, and God still loves you, then be strong in grace is like saying be strong in marshmallow fluff. Like it just doesn't do anything, right? But if grace is an active, cold, hard reality, a, an active truth that God has given us a gift that we do not deserve, that as James says, he's given us that every good gift that we will ever experience is coming from God. And we don't deserve one of them. But we're told in the Gospels that he loves to give good gifts to his children. If that's true, then you be strong in that. You hold on to that. You exercise that muscle. You learn. You tone that baby up. Right? You get to where you understand that. You go to that. You can rest in that. You find strength in that. That Jesus Christ, through his blood, through his death, and through his resurrection, we have so much that we do not deserve. We have the goodness of God available to us. Paul says, you be strong in that. He doesn't say be strong in getting all the answers right. He says, you be strong in knowing what God has done for you. And so he goes on now. He gives us a metaphor. It's not directly stated, but the first role that he's kind of describing is the role of a steward. The role of somebody whose job is to manage property for somebody else. He says, the things that you've heard from me, commit these to faithful men. This does not stop with you, Timothy, This is supposed to keep on going. When you learn it, you teach someone else. And you teach them to teach someone else. Right? How how do movements of God usually start? Because God works in the life of a man. And then he influences other men. And and then they become, so it becomes a movement. And then oftentimes it becomes a machine. And then it becomes a monument. But the way God wants to work is he wants to move in a man who will then influence other men or women. And then in each of those individuals, he wants it to then be, and then God moved in that man. And then he influenced other men, right? And we're here tonight because Timothy did this. I mean, you think about this. Timothy got this letter, and he did it. He committed it. I learned to teach because Scott Murphy taught me how to teach. Scott Murphy learned to teach from a guy named Bill Goodrich in Indianapolis. Bill Goodrich learned to teach from a guy named Mac, Ma- Mike McIntosh in San Diego. Mike McIntosh learned to teach from a guy named Chuck Smith 
in Costa Mesa, California. Coach Chuck Smith learned to teach because he was sick of trying to come up with new sermon materials and he read in a book somewhere that if he would take his church through either 1 John or Romans, I forget which, that it would profoundly affect his church. And so he taught his church through that because he was out of sermon material and he realized, you know, if I just teach the Bible, I'll never run out of things to talk about. So I'm just going to teach my church the Bible. And whoever wrote that book, I have no idea who it was. But they received something from someone else in front of them. There's a line that we can, you can, you have a family history. There's a family genealogy of how the Lord works. Right? And we're part of it. So it does not stop with us. We are not called to absorb all the truth of Christianity and then just inflate with it. We are called to learn it, grow in it, be strong in it, and pass it on. Next, Paul talks about a soldier. He says, endure hardship like a good soldier. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Being a faithful Christian is like being a soldier, Paul says. Okay, so what, is, what does a soldier do? Well, sort of like first and foremost, a soldier does not give the orders, right? Soldiers do what they're told. That's kind of the definition, right? That, that's one of the things that's, I've never been a soldier, so I don't want to speak as if I have too much experience, but sort of one of the implied things is the first thing you're going to learn how to do is say, yes, sir, right? You're going to obey, you're going to like it, and you're going to do it fast. And this is not your time to say, excuse me, I have an idea, right? Or excuse me, that doesn't make any sense to me. Could you explain why you want us to do it that way? That is not your job as a, if you're a soldier, right? So they also are uncomfortable people, right? Like being a soldier, nobody signs up to be a soldier because of the food or because of the mattresses, right? Being a soldier is about being uncomfortable. We're talking to a guy who was a Marine. He said, basically, I'm, I'm paid to be a homeless man. Like we just like we sleep outside nonstop, right? Being a soldier is about being uncomfortable. And if we're going to be faithful in Christian service, these are principles that apply. We are not here to call the shots. We are not here to make our lives comfortable. But also, what's the role of an army? Think about it for a second. The, the point and purpose of an army is to be lethal, right? I mean, I mean, the reason you have an army, the reason you train an army is basically to make them so good at killing people that other armies say, you know what? It's just not worth the, it's not worth the odds, right? The, uh, the point of an army is to be lethal. And so if you're going to be a faithful soldier, you've got a mission and you say, you know what? I want to do this effectively. I want to take this seriously. This is not time to use rubber bullets. This is not time to use thick mattresses. This is not time to call the shots. It's time to be a soldier for Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and talks about an athlete. He says, you're not crowned unless you compete according to the rules. Athletes, a lot like soldiers, don't set the terms, right? There are rules for every sport. Even the sports who's like their number one rules that there are no rules, right? They're out there. But there's rules for every sport. If you, if you, you know, there are, you're allowed to have a specific number of spikes on the bottom of your shoe if you're running track. If you get more than that and you break the world record, you're disqualified. And you say, well, my body physically moved across the line faster than any other human being's body has ever moved across the line. We don't care. Wasn't according to the rules. Doesn't count. There are rules. And the athletes do not determine them. And there are prizes. There are rewards. There are rewards to faithful Christian service. But there's, there's an understanding that, okay, if 
if I'm going to earn the reward, there's a system in place. There's something I've been entrusted to. I've been handed the rule book. I've been handed an understanding of here's how to compete. And then lastly, he talks about the farmer. He says the hardworking farmer is going to be the first one to partake of the crops. Farmers are some of the hardest working people on earth. And by and large, they're not doing it for these incredible lucrative returns, right? I mean, I mean, again, I'm not a farmer either, thank God. But, uh, you know, what's a farmer do? You basically pour all your money into putting seeds in the ground. And you hope that you get the right amount of wind and the right amount of rain and the right amount of sun and the right amount of temperature and you don't get a frost too early and you don't get a cold snap too late and you, don't, you know, your ground's not so wet that you can't get in with your harvesting equipment. And if you get a great crop, you know what you do? You get enough money to start the whole thing over again next year. Like, it's kind of a repetitive pattern. And it sometimes feels like there's not a whole lot of action going on, right? And if something goes wrong and something often does go wrong, what do you do? You just start over, right? When a, when a farmer's crop fails, you know what he does? He plants again next year. When he can't get it in time, you know what he does? Plants again next year. He says, well, I can't use the corn for corn, so I guess we'll turn corn stalks into round bales, right? And then you just you make the best of what you got and you just keep rolling, and these are the roles that Paul is describing as Christian service, which isn't like necessarily super encouraging, you know, like, okay. But all of these roles, all of these are about delayed gratification. None of these people get what they want right out of the gate, right? Soldiers, you know, farmers, athletes, there's a lot of training and preparation, and there's a lot of things that they are going to do that at the time feel completely disconnected from the end goal, right? Like athletes, you know, do all kinds of weird exercises to get themselves ready for a sport. And you look at them doing the sport and you think, why are you doing some of these exercises? Farmers put a seed in the ground. There's nothing, other than the fact that we have all seen it happen, there's nothing in a seed that remotely suggests that it's a plant waiting to come out, right? We believe it is because we've seen it happen for all of human history. But there's nothing in an acorn that looks like an oak tree. There's nothing in a corn kernel that looks like a corn stalk. Farmers just putting something in, in the belief that, you know what, there's a promise based on past behavior that something will come, and I believe it's going to come. Soldiers do all kinds of things that don't make any sense, right? I mean, you, if you go to boot camp, you're going to learn how to make your bed. And you could kind of speculate that what on earth does making my bed have to do with being good at shooting a gun? Like, they don't seem super connected in my mind right? But the military finds that there's a connection. And guess what? When you're a soldier, you're not the one giving the orders. So what do you do? You want to make your bed. Quicker you learn to make it, better off you are. But you better learn to make the bed because you're not the one giving the orders. And so these roles, the ideas that Paul is giving us about faithful Christian service, he's saying, look, you've got to understand something. What you are doing is for a long-term reward. What you are doing may not always make sense. Walking in obedience to the Lord oftentimes does not make sense. In verse 7, he says, Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. If you come to a, a place in your relationship with the Lord, if you come to a place as you're reading through the Word, and you say, I do not get what it's saying, you know what Paul says? Just think about it, and the Lord will show you. If you find a verse that doesn't make any sense, read the verse before it, read it, and read the verse after it. Oftentimes, that'll help clear it up. Read it out loud if you're having a hard time. But keep 
reading the Word of God. Grow in your relationship with the Lord because we're called to hold fast to the pattern of words which we've been given. Verse 8, Paul goes on. He says, Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with, with eternal glory. Paul says, remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And therefore, he says in verse 10, I endure all things. <coughs> Everything hinges on the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Paul says, you remember that and you can endure everything else. But you have got to remember that. Everything in our lives, everything we do, every action we pursue, every hard time we endure, we have got to take it back to this truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because of that, we should be holding fast. Because of that, we should be stirring up the gift that's in us. That's a, that's a, that's a truth of history. That's a truth of doctrine. That's a truth of reality. There is nothing more true in the entire universe than the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that should drive everything else in our lives. Verse 11, he goes on. He says, this is a faithful saying. And I was going to give us uh, sort of a condensed creed. He says, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So there's four points. He says, if we die, we shall also live. You've got to be willing to spiritually die to your flesh, to yourself, in order to actually experience life. And in a broader sense, once we physically die, that's when we'll really start to live. But for right now, if you want to really have vibrant life here on earth, your you need to die. I need to die. We have to say, okay, God, whatever I want, I am willing to let it die. I'll let that dream, that desire, that passion, whatever it is, I will let it die for the sake of coming to life with you. If we endure, he says, we shall also reign. If you're pursuing the Lord and you're just holding, holding steady and you feel like nothing is coming, Something's coming. There's a crown the Bible talks about. You're going to reign with Jesus Christ. Isn't that crazy? The king of the universe is going to somehow or other let you be part of the royal family. And actually, it appears, if we're going to reign with him, give us somehow sort of responsibility in his kingdom. So, yeah, it may not feel like anything's happening right now, but you know what? Sometimes those seeds sit in the ground for a long time before the farmer gets a harvest. Right? If we endure, we reign. He says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. That can be a scary verse, unless we have the one that comes right after it. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You know, there's a difference between losing your salvation and throwing it away. It's possible. Scriptures are fairly clear throughout a couple different points. You can say, you know what? I just don't want anything else to do with the Lord. It's hard for us to conceive if you've understood the relationship that God wants to have with you and what he's done. It's very hard to conceive coming to that place. But people have the ability to get there. And so if you deny him, say, you know, what, I've had it. Then there'll be a point at which he says, if you don't want to be with me, I don't want to make you. Right? 
If you, if you have said, I never want to spend eternity with God, then I will not make you spend eternity with God. You do, you are not, you're not going to. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we stumble, we make a mistake, right? We crash and burn hard, but we still are in pursuit of Christ. We're still willing to repent. He is faithful. Your salvation, your endurance, your effectiveness does not hinge on you. It does not hinge on your personal charisma or your personal brilliance or your personal ability. There's responsibility there for you, but your faithfulness does not hinge on you. It hinges on Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if he is powerful enough to do that, he is powerful enough to get you where you need to go, right? He is faithful. He can't deny himself. He promised to never leave you or forsake you. He can't deny that truth. He says he can, in Hebrews that he cannot lie. So he promised never to leave you or forsake you. If you want to forsake him, you have that right. But if you stumble, he's not going to forsake you. He's not going to leave you. The Lord is long-suffering. He is gracious and he is compassionate. Verse 14. Paul's going to start getting into sort of specific things to exhort the church in. Remind them, verse 14, of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Heminius and Philetus, that's two people, are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So, it's interesting here, Paul is exhorting Timothy as a pastor. He says, okay, here's who Christ is. Here's who you are. Now, as you're exhorting your church, here's what you need to do. Remind them. And it's a bit of an odd word because he doesn't say be brilliant. He doesn't say nail your doctrine down. He, he says remind them of, of what they already know. Remind them. Truth is laid out in Scripture for us. If you've read through the Bible once, you know the truth. You really, you know all the truth there is. Right? So anytime you're, you're back in the Word, anytime you're listening to a teaching, what are you doing? You're being reminded of something that you've already experienced. And so the role, of a, the role of a pastor, the role of a teacher, the role of anyone in a position of authority is never to impress people with brilliance. It's never to give them some new thought that they've never had before. It's to say, hey, you know what's true? Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that should drive everything else. And so as that drives everything else, let's look in the word of God together, right? But the role of someone in authority is to remind people of the truth. And then along the way, be diligent, Paul says, to present yourself approved to God. If you are in that position of authority, the fact that you get to remind people of truth does not mean you get to be lazy in how you present it. That doesn't mean that you get to say, well, they already know it anyways. No, no, no. You be diligent. You take it like it is a God-given calling in whatever capacity, in whatever form, in whatever size of influence you have. You be diligent in that. And you shun, he says, profane and idle babblings. You remind people of the truth. You be diligent in how you prepare it. And you stay away from stupid discussions. That's Paul's, that's Paul's like summary exhortation to any pastor, any leader, any person in any position of influence. 
throughout all of church history. You want to know what do you do when you're given a position of authority? It's right there. You remind people of the truth, you be diligent in how you do it, and you stay away from the stupid arguments. That's what Paul's telling them. And now he's going to go on. <clears throat> he's going to give us a couple of practical things. Verse 20. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. There's an idea sometimes that people have, and that is that God is powerful. He knows who's going to accept him. And so he made some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. And if you're one of the unlucky ones, sorry, too bad for you. Uh, you know, there's no hope, but hey, uh, it's nice knowing you. Paul says, you know, in a great house, there are vessels, right? There's a lot of containers that hold things. Some are made for honor, some are made from di- for dishonor, right? We have teapots and we have toilets. They're made out of the exact same material sometimes, but one's for an honorable purpose and one's for a not so honorable purpose. But he says, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be a vessel for honor. Any person has the ability to cleanse themselves by saying, Jesus Christ, I want you to cleanse me. He's not saying you clean yourself up by your own efforts, but he says, if you cleanse yourself, you'll be sanctified. If you have that place of, I want to be made clean by the Lord, the Lord will make you cleaner than you can imagine. He'll prepare you to be a vessel for honor. And think about, think about what that honor is. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling in you. What more honorable thing could you put in a container? Right? I mean, what, what greater honor could any vessel ever have than to be able to say, I am containing the Holy Spirit. And that's what every Christian has. And you receive that by accepting it. So salvation is open to everyone. Paul's just nailing that point. And now he's going to give us sort of four thoughts. We're going to read from 22 down to the end of the chapter, and then we'll go back and, and hit them all together. Verse 22. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So I said there's four points, roughly. I mean, you could break it down, I'm sure, a multitude of ways. But he says, flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's a connected thought. Okay, so first of all, he says, flee youthful lust. Now, it doesn't mean if you're a youth, you need to flee your lust, and if you're an old man, you don't. There are certain lusts that just, they're more present, more visible in younger people. Paul says, you flee those things. Okay? But there's a couple interesting things with this. Flee is a, it's a sprinting word. Right? If I yell flee, it's like yelling run for your life. So there's, a, there's an, sort of an obvious interpretation, which is when the opportunity to sin presents itself, you get out of the situation. You don't negotiate with it, right? You don't reason your way through it. You get out of there. But there's another element that I think is really important, and that is that when we describe the Christian life, what do we usually describe it as? A marathon, right? Nobody can sprint a marathon. 
I mean, if you're a fast runner, you can maybe break a five-minute mile, right? I, don't, I doubt any person in this church can do it. Um, if I'm wrong, I'm happy to be. But five-minute miles, pretty decent clip. It's not world-class, but it's good, okay? How many of those can you do in a row? I mean, like, if you're, like, really good, what, five, ten? Maybe if you're a world-class athlete, uh, maybe you could do a full marathon in that. If you do a full marathon at five miles, at five-minute miles, you're going to wrap up in two hours and ten minutes, something like that. Congratulations. You made it two hours and ten minutes at a sprint. Now, I'm 26 years old. If I live to be the average age of the average male in the United States, I'll live to be about another 50 years. So if I get two and a half hours in as, as like a super athlete, I've just got 49 years, 364 days, and 21 and a half hours left to go, right? And there's an idea here that you flee, but understand the context of you will not flee on your own strength. This will not happen on your own. And that's then connected to the next thought, which says, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Telling someone, hey, just quit sinning is about the worst thing you could ever say to a human being because it now ties everything into your strength, right? If I am responsible to make myself not sin, I am setting myself up for a lifetime of frustration, right? If it's just don't think about it, don't look at it, don't do it, then, it's, it, then even as you are trying to not sin, what are you doing? You're thinking about your sin, right? And your mind just kind of is, is running this little loop and it goes a little faster and a little faster and a little deeper and a little deeper and all of a sudden you're right back where you are. But so you don't just run from something. You run to something, okay? You, you set a goal and you go for the goal, all right? So pursue something. Yes, flee youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace and do it in a community with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. If you want to be faithful in Christianity and you need to flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, you're not going to get very far on your own. You might get a full marathon, and that's if you're like superhuman, okay? Congratulations, that gets you two hours in. It's not so great, right? You want to you wanna be faithful? You've got to be pursuing something, and, and really, you need to be pursuing someone, right? Paul says in verse... Chapter 1, verse 12, I know whom I have believed. It's a lot easier to say, I know that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. I know that the Holy Spirit has been given to me to empower me. And therefore, I want to surround myself with brothers and sisters who are passionate about serving the Lord. And with them, as a group, I want to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And I want to have hard conversations when I need to, but I'm in pursuit of of a goal. I am looking for the glory of Jesus Christ because I have, like Paul says, the promise of life. That's a lot easier and a lot more effective than, oh no, just don't sin. Just be good. Right? There's a, there's a, there's a very connected idea and it's very important that we never lose sight of that. Don't just run from sin. Run to Christ. And run to Christ with your brothers and sisters. And then his last two thoughts, he says, but as you're running, 
Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. So stay away from things that are going to cause contention. We're all running a race together. There is no reason for me to trip you while we are running, right? Flee foolish and ignorant disputes. What is a dispute? A dispute is when I am concerned about how my viewpoint is being treated, okay? If we start to disagree and I say, you're right, the argument can't continue, right? If I say green is the best color and you say, no, blue is the best color, and I say, you know, I think you're right, blue is the best color. There is no argument, right? What happens is when I say, no, it's green. And in fact, if you don't understand that it's green, it's obviously an expression of your diminished intellect, right? That's a dispute. A dispute is when I have a right that I need to hang on to, and my right is that I am correct, or I'm better, or I'm smarter. Paul says, you avoid those things. James says, when envy and self-seeking exist, there is confusion and every evil thing. The best way to confuse where we're running to, the best way to confuse the vision of a church or the vision of your own heart individually is to get hung up on your own rights. And well, you know, I'm a Christian and, and he's a Christian, but I mean, for crying out loud, I know, I know the Bible better than he does, right? I mean, for crying out loud, I'm, I'm obviously more mature than he is, right? And so I'll let him tag along, but we both know that if we're going to get to the end of this thing, it's going to be because I pulled him along and I kind of let him come, you know, I mean, oh, by the way, yeah, Jesus Christ is, is the author and finisher of our faith. Oh, by the way, the Spirit of God is going to give us the power to get through. But really, it's, it's probably because I'm right and he's wrong, right? Paul says, hey, avoid those things. That's dumb. And we can sit here, you know, and I'll say, like, yeah, that is dumb. Yeah, yeah, but wait, wait, wait. It's, there are a lot of truths that are easy to say right here and a little harder to live out when we get offended right? It's easy to sit up here and laugh and say, yeah, 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 I don't think, I don't, we don't actually think somebody's less spiritually mature. We don't actually think they're dumber. We don't actually think it's dependent on us <laughs> until all of a sudden you do, right? So I have responsibility to stand up here and remind every one of us, avoid those things because we are in pursuit of someone. And if I am looking back to gauge how far ahead of you I am, I cannot see the goal effectively. And so he says, avoid those things, but also a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. So, you know what? There's a reality that yes, if you've been in the word of God for a long time, if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, there might be things you know, there might be experiences you've had that maybe are uh, more mature than the person next to you. And so, yeah, you need to be able to teach, but you need to be able to correct if someone's in opposition to the truth. But what do you got to do? You got to be gentle to all. When, when a brother or sister is stumbling or struggling to keep up, that's a great time to give them a splint. It's not a great time to beat them over the head, right? It's just, it's just you know, beating people over the head just does not speed you up in a race very well. It just, it's just awful for wind resistance. But, and if you've got to correct them, you may have to correct people, okay? There are times when people say things and you've got to say, I want to say as nice as I can, but that's just not right. But what do you got to do? You've got to do it in humility. Humility. Not, it's not, they're not wrong because you're right. 
Okay? If they're wrong, it's because the truth of God has said something that they are either not comprehending or not listening to. And, the only, and if you understand it, it's because God has let you see it. It's not because you are special. Right? We, we talked about in 1 Corinthians when we talk about the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts are not a mark of maturity in the life of a Christian. When a Christian has the ability either to speak in tongues or to exercise the gift of healing or maybe a word of prophecy or a word of wisdom or the gift of helps, that's not a mark of being, you know, it's not like there's a ranking and once you kind of make it through junior high, you get to the high school level gifts and then once you get your PhD in spirituality, you get the real gifts. They're gifts. God hands them out because he likes blessing his kids, right? And so you can't look at someone who's got a gift and say, wow, that's a mark of maturity in their life. You say, wow, that's a mark of the goodness of God in their life. And in the same way, if you have the opportunity because you've been given a truth, God has revealed something to you through his word, and you have the opportunity to correct someone who is in opposition to that truth, it's not because you're awesome. It's not because I'm awesome. It's because God is a good God. It's because he's gracious. It's because he loves us, right? And so Paul is calling Timothy. He's saying, okay, listen, there has got to be a clarity in your vision. Your job is not to fix people. Your job is to remind people of the truth. And that truth specifically is that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You remind them of that over and over and over again. And you run your race, you stir up your gift, and you you do it with them. You do it in that community of believers, right? And you do it according to the promise of life. We're not doing this to get through this life. We're not trying to hang on to Christianity just so we can avoid doing something stupid until the day we die. We're, we're walking in Christianity. We're walking with Christ because there's a promise of life and a, and a sweetness of fellowship that's available to every single one of us. And that is worth pursuing. So Lord, we pray that your word would go deep in our hearts that it would change us. God, if we are in need of correction, we pray that you would correct us. But we thank you that we have the privilege of, of being in a community of believers. I thank you for the privilege of teaching your word to my friends. God, what a gift for all of us to be able to see your word speak to our hearts. I pray that you would go before us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, guide us and lead us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, our goal, our prize, that we pray. Amen.